This is Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Hey, welcome back. We're looking at Ephesians 4.13 today, where we discover God's model for church growth. And uh, when I talk about church, don't think about that brick building on the corner of Elm and Main Street in your town with the white steeple that some people go to on Sunday morning between the hours of 10.30 and noon. That's not the church. That might be a place where some part of the church gathers, but that itself, that activity, is not the church. Okay, so uh, if you want to learn more about what the church is, uh, I strongly suggest... You take or you read my book called Skeleton Church. It defines the church, shows you what the church is in Scripture. So uh, you certainly need to understand that as we're talking about church growth in the, in the last couple episodes of this podcast study and today. I want to let you know as well, I will be adding some new courses to my discipleship group. I hope to start those today. So if you're part of my discipleship group, go check those out. Um if you've been listening to my podcast for quite a while, that the content I'm adding won't exactly be new. I've just recently discovered that uh, some of my podcast episodes, I have over 300 of them, by the way, and I'm closing in on a million downloads, which I found pretty exciting when I just was looking at the statistics earlier today. But I noticed that in some of the podcast um, providers, like iTunes and Google Play and some of these others where it's listed, they only show the most recent 50 or 100 episodes. And so I'm going to be adding a couple of courses to the discipleship group so that uh, you can get some of those old episodes. So I'll be adding, a, for example, a course on Genesis 1, a course on uh, Genesis 2 and 3, a course on Jonah. Okay. And basically what those will be doing was we'll just be reposting my old podcast episodes there so that for those of you who maybe missed it, or want to have all of those episodes in one place, uh, that will be available to you there. And of course, I, I'm, I'm starting to, to restudy and rework some of my gospel dictionary lessons. I'm still working on the word love, and I do plan to get back to recording more lessons for that course as well, and post them online for those of you in the discipleship group. If you want to join the discipleship group and you're not part of it, just go to redeeminggod.com. And uh, click that word join at the top. All right. Uh, if you're on a mobile device, you might need to do the little drop down menu option. And um, it's, it's there for you. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks uh, for that little introduction. Let's get into our study then of Ephesians 4.13. My brother's an architect and, um, or at least he used to be. He's not anymore. He's sort of an entrepreneur now. But when he was an architect, this was, oof. Close to 20 years ago, a little more now, the firm he worked for in Montana was hired by a megachurch in town to do an addition to, to their building. And uh, I walked into his office at the time, and uh, they were in the final planning process, the final stages of, of designing and uh, putting together all the bits and pieces. They hadn't started work on the, the addition to the church yet. But uh, he was working on a little miniature chipboard model. Have you seen these? Sort of a little model made of that little, it's uh, sort of a, a really lightweight wood. And they, they construct this whole thing, and then they put it on this 
this thing so that the people who are, you know, and then they'd usually put it at the foyer of the church, whatever, so, so that people can see what the building is going to look like when it's complete. Sort of think of it as a fancy way to do Legos, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyway, he was almost done. My brother was almost done with the chipboard model at the time. And I remember looking at it in awe. He had cut out all the windows. He had made a topographical contour uh, of the, the, the grounds that the building would sit on. There was little trees inserted and bushes here and there. There was even little people <laughs> that he had put on it. Some looking out windows, some walking around in the parking lot. Okay. And you could peer through the windows and see this. There was even little cars in the parking lot. It was pretty impressive. And upon looking at the incredible detail of this model, I asked him how much time it took to build this model. And he told me that the length of time depends on the complexity of the model, but that particular model took a, a couple hundred hours and the firm was able to charge the megachurch several thousand dollars to build that model. Okay. So a couple hundred of hours and several thousands of dollars. Now, at the time, I was pastor of a tiny little church in rural Montana, and I wanted to gag when I heard that. Uh, the amount of money this mega church spent on that model could have supported my struggling tiny little rural church for a couple of months. Okay? Aside from that, it seemed like a terrible waste of time from the architect's perspective. Um, but I don't, you know, I didn't know anything about architecture or fundraising or anything like that. So I asked my brother why churches and why companies spent all that money to have these models built. And the reason he told me was that these models help generate interest in the, in the building project, in the addition, and specifically with the fundraising. It's easier, he said, for people, for churches, for organizations, for companies to raise money for this sort of addition, if people can visualize what it is, you know, the, the, the final result, the outcome of what this building, this addition will look like. Okay. People like to see the end result before they donate money to the project. Okay. And so statistics, apparently studies show that uh, this money is well spent and you get a, a better rate of return on your investment attempts, on your uh, donation attempts, your donation drives, when you have these models and people can see it. All right, so I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but I left the office that day. It occurred to me that God has also provided a model for his church. Okay, God, as we're sort of working through God's plan for how to grow and build his church, He's the architect. We can think of God as the architect of the church. And he, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, in Ephesians 4.13, which is the verse we're looking at in today's study, has provided a model for the church. He's saying, hey, as you grow, as you build, as you start to plan and prepare and envision what you can become, what you should look like as the church, here's the model. Here's the goal. Here's the chipboard model. Okay, that you want to look like. Here's what Ephesians 4.13 says. Uh, it's, it's a continuation of what Paul has already written, so it's, it's, we're breaking into the sentence here. But here's what he says. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay? So, in a word, Christ, or Jesus Christ, is the model, the goal, the picture of what the church is supposed to be when we become the church that God wants. Now, in this verse, Ephesians 4.13, I've noticed that there are three aspects, or we could even say three dimensions of this model that God is seeking for his church, right? All these models, the chipboard model my brother was building, models are three dimensions, height, width, and depth, right? And so uh, these models have three dimensions, and here there's sort of these three dimensions of the model that God has provided for us as well. So that's what we're going to look like, look at as we go through this verse here in Ephesians 4.13. The width of God's model is unity, the depth of God's model is maturity, and the height of the model is our growth into or up into Christ's, Christ-likeness. Okay, so let's look at them one at a time. Width is the unity. So this first dimension is right there, is found right there in the first part of Ephesians 4.13. The text says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. And um, remember, just by way of context here, we've already looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 contains a description or a list of the four foremen on the construction side of the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor-teachers. Okay? And we looked at, in our study of Ephesians 4.11 what these four foremen do. Last time in Ephesians 4.12, we looked at the crew, what the crew does in the church. And we discovered that it is not the foremen who do the ministry of the church, but rather it is the crew who do the ministry. Okay? Every person in the church is a minister in this sense. Uh, The foreman equipped the crew to do the ministry in the church. And what is that ministry? Well, we're beginning to see it now here in Ephesians 4.13. To develop unity is this first thing. And really, this makes sense, perfect sense, with what Paul has been writing in the book of Ephesians up to this point. Ephesians 1-3, through as we've been working our way through Ephesians, is all about the riches and the wealth, the inheritance that we have been given by God. Before God ever asks you to do anything, he's going to first tell you what he has provided to you freely so that you can do it. So that's Ephesians 1, 2, 3. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is sort of the application. Here uh, is, based on Ephesians 1, 2, 3, here now, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, is what God wants you to do about it. And Paul begins this whole section here in Ephesians chapter 4, by instructing his readers to walk in unity. Remember, that's the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, walk in unity. And, for example, he wrote back in Ephesians 4.3, which we've looked at previously, that Christians should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, in Ephesians 4.13, he's writing that the first dimension of this church model is unity. Right? So he's just sort of summarizing what he has been writing about in this first section of Ephesians 4 up till this point. Now, when you think of the modern church, or even church in history, would you say that unity is one of the defining characteristics of the church? I don't think so. In fact, even unchurched people, non-Christians, they know that Christianity in general is pretty much full of strife and division, and differences, right? What are we divided over? 
you name it. We're divided over theology, right? Over politics, leadership, music styles, finances, ministry opportunities, community involvement. You know, what is and isn't sin? Numerous other issues. Sometimes what color the carpet should be or what color to to paint the church, right? Or whether to pave the parking lot or not. All right. So we pretty much, if there's an issue, the church is divided over it. Uh, It sometimes feels like there is nothing that the church will not argue about. I believe that is why unity is the first dimension of the church that God wants to build. Right? Since division and strife is the default position, and it's not just for the church. I shouldn't say this is a church problem, but this is really a human problem, isn't it? And we, as humans, have brought this problem of, of division into the church. I mean, our world is nothing if not divided. Again, not just a church problem, it's a human problem. Division is everywhere we look, in families, in politics, in economics, everything, Okay. And so one of the reasons God wants the church to be unified is so that we can live as an example to the world of how they too can live in unity. And if the church is failing, then we have no reason to expect that the world will live in in unity and love in unity either. Okay? So uh, the, the church is supposed to show the world how to live in peace. And this is all that we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 4 so far up to this point. But when unity develops in the church, it allows us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to work together for a common purpose. And that doesn't mean we're all going to become clones. Unity does not mean uniformity. Okay? We do not all work in the same way on the same projects in the same way. Okay, biblical peace, biblical unity allows us to live in our own unique way. Last time in Ephesians chapter 4.12, we saw that we each of us have our own shape. That means we're all unique. There's nobody like you. There's nobody like me. Okay, so we're all completely unique. But unity allows us to live together in peace with all of these unique contributions to the church. We allow others to offer their unique insights and unique forms of service and contributions. Unity occurs when everybody does what he or she does best in order to serve others and lets others do their way as well. Okay, We all have a common goal, though, and that's what we're talking about here in Ephesians 4.13. Common purpose, a common vision, a common direction, right? Common model, framework that we're all working towards. You know, think about it. This is really how, just take it outside of theology for a second. This is really how it works with any building. I'm sitting in a building right now, a house. It consists of a wide diversity of pieces and parts. Some things I can see, like the cabinets and the desk and the floor, right, that are right around me. Some parts I can't see, the electrical wiring and the plumbing and the insulation inside the walls and the foundation that the the house sits on, okay? In a building, not everything's a window, not everything's a floor, but all the pieces, including the invisible pieces, even including the tiny little pieces like nails and screws, okay, they all work together to make the building functional and strong and sound to live in. If there's no common purpose or unity or theme or goal, then the building is not going to be functional and it's not going to be safe for those who use it. Several years ago, again, many, many years ago, this is over 25 years, you know, oh, time goes fast. 
I was working as a caretaker at a, a summer Bible camp up in northwest Montana. And uh, one week I was told that the camp needed a storage rack for the life jackets and the canoe paddles. Up to that point, they were just sort of throwing all in a pile. And so I was asked by uh, those who sort of oversee the camp to build one. <laughs> Uh, the person who asked me to build the rack never really even bothered to ask if I knew anything about construction. And I was a novice. I was new at the job. I wanted to do my best job possible. And so I didn't tell them, eh, you know, I've never really built anything. I, I, I don't really know how to build a building. <laughs> um, I probably should have asked for a, a short tutorial or something about construction. Maybe called up my brother and said, hey, give me some quick tips here. Um Prior to this, I'd never really built anything, but I figured, hey, look, how hard can it be? They're not asking me to build anything that people are going to live in. The only thing is it's supposed to keep the rain off of the, the life jackets and paddles and store them in some orderly fashion. That's it. I don't even need to put walls on the thing. It's just a rack. How hard can a rack be? So I was going to build something to hang the, the, the life jackets on and then some sort of little compartment to stack the, the paddles in and maybe put a tin roof on it to keep the rain off. And that would be that. I figured that sounds pretty easy. Okay, so I didn't draw anything. I just said some sort of vague idea in my head of what I wanted, and I started throwing some two-by-fours together. I didn't measure. I literally didn't measure anything. I just, there was some old scrap lumber lying around. I cut a bunch of them in the same length and and started nailing everything together. Yeah, it looks about the right size. Okay, I decided since the life jackets were outside, you know, maybe put this roof on top. So again, I put some two by fours. There was some old tin roof around. It turns out the tin roof wasn't the right size for the rack I had built. So I got out some old tin snips, and <laughs> cut it down to size. Um, but then, you know, when I get the tin roof on there, I realized that I hadn't spaced it out properly with the, the, the two by fours that were supporting the roof. And so there were edges hanging down in the middle. It was a mess. Okay. An absolute mess. Uh, it was one ugly and rickety and also a little bit dangerous. Those sharp edges of the, the tin roof that I had used the snips on, guess what? The sharp edges were exactly at face height for kids, the lower edge. Anyway, the, the upper edge, I was at a, I did put it at an angle. So the rain would go off the, the back end of the rack but that lower edge where I had snipped the roof, uh, the, the, tin, the tin roofing, that lower edge was right at face height for children. So if any were running along there, they literally would have uh, sliced their face. It was a disaster. Literally was a disaster. Unsafe. Now, uh, the thing is, though, it was the first thing I'd ever built. And I was pretty proud of it. I had put it together in literally a couple hours in an afternoon, start to finish. Okay, now here's the funny thing. Ironically, at that same exact time, we had a master carpenter at the Bible camp who was constructing an actual building <laughs> that people could live in. It was going to contain a, a dorm and a couple of offices. Now, I was proud of my little shack, and so I called him over and said, hey, <laughs> come take a look at what I built. And he had been up there for weeks and took months to build this thing with the help of some other people who showed up to do the work. But I had built my rack in a couple of uh, hours in an afternoon. So I was like, eh, look at me, I'm pretty good. So I called him over and I said, Hey, look what I put together. <laughs> he was very kind. He looked at my newly built shack and said, Hmm, well, it'll work. All we need to do is store the life jackets and paddles 
And then he went back to construct his building. What do you think happened? Well, the primary difference between his building and my building was what? Planning and unity. All right. I did not build my little shack. It wasn't even a shack. Sort of a pile of garbage with a roof on top. I had no no purpose in mind other than it needs to hold the life jackets and the paddles. I had used some lumber lying around, some tin roofing, didn't measure anything properly, had no blueprint, had no plan, had no model I was following. My little shack, guess how long it lasted? It didn't even make it through the winter. <laughs> Not even one year. Winter uh, snow came and the shack fell over. Guess how long his building lasted? The master carpenter's building. Well, last time I was at the camp, it was still there and in use and looked pretty much exactly the way it had the first time he had built it. Oh, a little wear and tear uh, here and there, but uh, it was still functional and still working 20 plus years later. That shows the difference between having a plan and a model and a purpose when you're building something, right? That's the difference. It's the story of two buildings, one with a unified plan and purpose and one without. And that shows what happens when we as the church do not have a plan and purpose that we're following. We're just sort of throwing things together. Oh, well, let's just, you want to do this? Okay, let's just throw it on there. Oh, look at this spare part line over here. Let's add that in. Okay, and there's no plan and purpose. And disunity occurs, fighting occurs, disagreements occur, misunderstandings occur, and the church is not strong. The church does not function. The church falls apart time and time again and splits. Okay? That's what happens when there is no model, no plan, no purpose that we're following. And that's why God has provided this plan and purpose that we're looking at here, so that we can grow into unity. All right? It doesn't mean we have to be in agreement on everything or act in identical ways. It just means that as a diverse group of believers, we can still work together to serve God and accomplish what he wants. Now, back to Ephesians 3.13 here with that sort of idea in mind. Paul points out in verse 13 that there are two elements to this unity that he wants us to put together. Unity of the faith and then unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, so unity of the faith. Let's look at them first, uh, both of these first briefly. The faith. What is the faith? When you think of the faith, you might think of, well, I believed in Jesus, right? I had faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. But that is not exactly what Paul is talking about here. I do have a lesson in my Gospel Dictionary online course on the word faith. And uh, in that lesson, I point out that the noun faith is primarily used in two ways in the New Testament. There's the first way, which is what most people think of when they hear the word faith. And it's typically this idea of, of belief, right? Uh, having confidence in or being persuaded about the truth of, of some claim. Okay, so we often talk and I often talk about faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Um, and, and when a person believes in Jesus, God has promised to give them eternal life. John 3.16, John 5.24, etc. Okay, we all know about that. It's very common use of the word faith. 
Uh, we can believe or have faith in all sorts of other things as well. You know, we can believe that God exists. We can believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We can we believe that the Bible can be trusted in what it says. All sorts of things not related to Scripture as well. We can believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, that the chair we're going to sit on is going to hold our weight, and so on. I have a whole book, I have a whole book on the word faith, What is Faith?, which goes into this in great detail, which you can uh, get on Amazon or whatever as well. Okay, now that's the main reason of uh, main way people understand the word faith. But there's a second way the word faith is used in Scripture as well. In numerous places in Scripture, the word faith is preceded by the article, the word the, the faith, uh, and that's how Paul is using it here. In these cases, the faith isn't referring to believing in Jesus or being persuaded that something is true. Okay? Instead, the faith is referring to the body of common beliefs or the essentials of Christian life and practice, Okay, something like that. And when we think about it, this is how we use the word faith, the faith, the phrase the faith in common everyday language also. When you're talking about the different, say, religions of the world, you might talk about the Mormon faith, or the Jewish faith, or the Islamic faith, or the Christian faith, right? In all of those cases, you're using the word the in front of that modifier, the adjective, Mormon, Jewish, Islamic, to describe a type of faith. And when you talk about the Mormon faith, or the Jewish faith, or the Islamic faith, what are you referring to? You're referring to the beliefs and practices that that particular group of people have in common, which sort of define them as a religious group. Okay? So that's what Paul has in mind here, the faith. It's not believing in Jesus for eternal life. That is a faith, one part of faith that makes up the Christian faith. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's it, that, That's how uh, what Paul is talking about here, and that makes sense based on this concept of unity in the faith. He's not saying, "Hey, you all need to agree that the way to receive eternal life is believe in Jesus for it." That is true. <laughs> that's a central aspect of the Christian faith. But he's saying, "Hey, there's a whole group of beliefs and practices and behaviors." that Jesus taught us to do, and which I, Paul, have, have, have taught you as well, and those are the things that you need to be in unity on, you need to be in agreement on. When you have those things in common, then that will help you grow and develop into unity. Okay, now, here's the problem, though. What are those basics? What are the non-negotiables. What are the things that make the Christian faith the Christian faith? I mean, I, I wish, honestly, Paul had named a few, and I think he does. For example, over in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a couple in several other places. Uh, but it sure would be nice if there was somewhere in the Bible that said, here are the 10 core essential beliefs of Christianity. You know, um, Believe in the virgin birth. Believe that Jesus was sinless. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day. Believe that, right? It would be nice. Because, uh, how about this? Is um, creation 
that God created the world in seven 24-hour days. Is that essential to Christianity? I mean, if someone doesn't believe that God created the world in seven days, seven 24-hour days, but they do believe that Jesus Christ was sinless and that God come in the flesh, that uh, he was born of a virgin and he died on the cross, rose again from the dead the third day, and that anyone who believes in him for eternal life has it. They believe all that, but they just, maybe they believe in theistic evolution or they believe in evolution. Okay, are they a Christian? Are they part of the Christian faith or are they not? There's lots of people who say, no, they're out. Other people say, no, of course, they're in. That's fine. So what are the non-negotiables? And I wish there was a place in the Bible that had them. Here's the 10 things, or here's the 100 things. And sadly, there isn't. Okay? So, and maybe if we sat down and talked things over, we could come up with a few. Obviously, we need to believe there's there's God. <laughs> Pretty sure that's essential. Maybe... Uh, what about the authority of Scripture? I think we can all agree in the authority of Scripture, but there's another issue. What about inerrancy of Scripture? Do you have to believe that every single word of Scripture is literally true? Hmm. Lots of Christians say, yes, you do, and others say, no, you don't. What are the essentials? What are the non-negotiables? Pretty sure there's lots of essentials surrounding Jesus Christ, God incarnate, uh, you know, lots of other things. But but I'm not going to try and list the 10 or 15 or, or whatever. Um, but but I, I do think that when Paul is talking here about the non-negotiables, the, the faith, uh, a lot of it is what he talks about, some of the major themes that he brings up over and over again in his letters. And by the way, let me just make a distinction here. It's very possible for someone to have eternal life by believing in Jesus for it, and not believe a lot of the other essentials related to Christianity. That's my, my conviction, is that it's possible to believe in Jesus for eternal life and not know or not believe or be ignorant of several essentials of the faith in Christianity. That's a whole different discussion. I'd love to have it sometime, but I'm not going to do that here. We don't want to say you are not a Christian because you don't believe in seven-day creationism, or you don't believe in hell, or you don't believe that the entire Bible is inerrant. Okay, that's that we don't want to go that way because that's where division and strife and disunity are introduced into the body of Christ. All right. Uh, Paul dealt with some of these, and I think sometimes these essentials maybe change a little bit. For example, Paul deals with uh, meat sacrifice to idols <laughs> in various places. Uh, in Romans uh, 14 and 1 Corinthians 10, it, that's not an issue for us today, right? Um, so I, I think that it's sort of this, this, uh, this concept, or what are the things we need to agree on in our generation, in our time, so that we can all live in unity with each other, uh, that sort of changes from, from time to time, and even from geographical location to geographical location. And maybe that's probably why there is no specific list. These are the 10 things in the Bible, because God was smart enough to know that they would change from time to time, from generation to generation, and even from geographical location. The things that we believe are essential might be different than, say, what our friends, our brothers and sisters in Africa or China might believe are essential. Okay? So, anyway, that's the first thing. I'm spending way too much time on this. We need to move on. The point is, we need to agree. If there's going to be unity, we need to come to agreement on what things are essential to believe. 
and, and what things we can, we can allow disagreement on. And I would encourage you to realize that the list is probably a lot shorter than most of us think. And that gives us grace, allows us to show grace to, towards people who might disagree with us. All right, moving on then, knowledge of Christ. This is the second area that allows us to grow in unity with one another. Um, and in fact, I think knowledge of Christ helps us grow in unity with the faith. As we learn about Jesus and study Jesus and try to follow Jesus, then as we grow in our knowledge of him and what he taught, how we behave, then that gives us more unity in the faith. This word knowledge, um, he's not just talking about book knowledge. The normal word for knowledge, by the way, is gnosis. Paul uses the word epinosis, which is, it's similar, you can hear it, but it has that the word epi there on the front. It, it, so it's, it's something sort of closer to knowledge upon knowledge. And it it's, uh, sort of has the definition of full, complete, and detailed knowledge. Right? It's to know something completely, through and through, uh, a certain and sure knowledge. And that's the kind of knowledge we're to have of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to Christian unity. But here's the question. <laughs> Is this kind of knowledge even possible? Do you have complete and thorough knowledge of everything related to Jesus Christ? <laughs> uh, I hope you can say no to that. If you say, yes, I have complete knowledge, well, you might have a pride issue, <laughs> right? Uh, no, I don't think it's, any, it's, it's possible for any human to have thorough and complete and exact and, and full knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not possible in this life, really, for any topic. Earlier, Paul wrote that he wanted the Ephesian Christians to know that which cannot be known, namely the love of Christ. We looked at that in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Okay, so how can we know that which cannot be known? <laughs> Either the love of Christ there or the full knowledge of Jesus Christ here. And Epinosis, how can we have knowledge upon knowledge? The answer is to recognize that we can never fully know or comprehend Jesus Christ, Therefore, we are to do two things. First, we're supposed to try. We're supposed to add to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As long as we know we don't know everything, then that means we're always going to be learning, right? As soon as we think we know everything, then we stop learning. We stop trying. We stop studying. We stop trying to follow Jesus and coming to him to learn more about him. Uh, and since epi epinosis can be translated knowledge upon knowledge, it could mean, it could get... It, it could be understood to mean that we are to be constantly adding knowledge to the knowledge we already have. And so we do that through prayer and study and, and following Jesus wherever he goes. But this constant pursuit of knowledge is, is dangerous if we don't also incorporate the second element of gaining this knowledge, which is that humility. Okay, I indicated earlier, if you think you know everything, then you've got an issue with pride. So as long as we realize we don't know everything, that's going to keep us humble. And since we know that we can never fully know Jesus Christ, this means that our knowledge of him is never full and complete, which means we must depend and rely and work with other people because they might know some things and have learned some things about Jesus Christ that they can teach to us. And that's going to keep us humble. And the humility does what? leads us into unity. 
right? As we study and grow, sure, there's some things we can teach to others. But others have learned different things about Jesus Christ, which they can teach to us. And we must remain humble so that we can learn from others what they learn and teach with humility the things that we have learned. This, as we're all learning together, leads to unity in the faith and helps us grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's the first dimension in this building that God is developing, which is the width, unity. Let's move on to the second dimension, also mentioned here in Ephesians 4.13, which is the depth, maturity. Second dimension is maturity. Paul writes, to a perfect man. Uh, The foreman, remember, that we looked at in Ephesians 4.13, train the crew in verse 12, and the crew use their God-given gifts for ministry and until the church becomes perfect. So what does the word perfect here? Does that mean that we're all going to become sinless, this side of heaven? No, it does not mean that. The word Paul uses here for perfect is teleos. Uh, It refers to arriving at the end or the goal for which you were created. Okay, It's not so much about the destination, but the journey toward it. uh, the, The quest for Christian maturity is an ongoing journey as we seek to become more and more like Jesus Christ each passing day. Paul's invitation for the church to become perfect, okay, it's basically an invitation to grow into maturity. How do we know that? We know it because he's going to elaborate further in Ephesians 4.14, which we'll look at next time, where he writes, Therefore we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, don't be immature, but start growing up into maturity. An immature Christian, a baby Christian, is someone who is not biblically and doctrinally grounded. They're not yet able to tell the difference between good theology and false theology, good teaching and bad teaching. Baby Christians sort of blow every which way. Oh, well, he quoted a Bible verse. It must be true. Remember, even Satan can quote Bible verses. Baby Christians think that, well, as long as that pastor, that author, that Bible teacher, he went to seminary, he's got a PhD, uh, he must know the truth. Okay, well, maybe, maybe not. Baby Christians think that as long as a teacher or pastor, well, he's on the radio, he's got a couple books published. He must be correct. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, The good news is baby Christians can grow up. A spiritual baby can mature, just like a physical baby, right? (laughs) Babies don't stay babies forever. Thank goodness. We love that, that baby stage, but we also like to have our children grow up. How does that happen? Well, they need to be fed some healthy meals. They need to get some rest, go to bed on time, receive a little discipline. They need to be trained physically, emotionally, and socially. They need to learn how to talk, learn how to walk, learn how to feed themselves. As a Christian, you're not going to be spoon-fed forever. At some point, you should be able to read Scripture and study it on your own. Make your own meals. Feed yourself. They can discipline their minds to pray and their wallets to give. And clearly, the maturing Christians should be helping. This is what discipleship is all about teaching others what we have been taught so that others can grow and develop and mature 
and eventually serve and teach as well. Okay, so in these ways, all Christians will mature and the church as a whole will grow up and develop, and then that helps accomplish the goal that God has set for the church towards unity and to maturity. The third and final dimension then here in Ephesians 4.13 is height, which is Christ-likeness. It's found right there at the end. Paul writes that we are to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, previously in Ephesians 4.13, he told us to gain as much knowledge about Christ as we possibly could. And now he tells us to become as much like Christ as we possibly can. And this is important because knowledge precedes becoming, right? You can't become what you don't know about. Before you can become like Christ, you need to know about Jesus Christ. This is why reading the Bible and learning about Jesus and, and studying Scripture is not a waste of time. Because gaining the knowledge about Jesus helps us become more like him. Right? We can go no deeper into Jesus Christ then we allow him to get into us. And we do this by reading Scripture, learning from others. And Paul mentions here these, these words, measure, stature, fullness. This is sort of Paul laying term upon term upon term just to show us, look, here's our goal. We want one word to recognize or to, to summarize what the church is supposed to be becoming like. That word is Jesus. And the measure and the stature and the fullness of Jesus Christ. So the first word here is measure. It comes from the Greek word metron. You might recognize that, the, the metric system. Metron means measure. Paul is saying, go to great lengths to become like Jesus in every way, even to the tiniest, smallest little bit. Okay? Become like Christ in his measure. Second word there is stature. Generally, this refers to age as in number of years. That's not what Paul means. I mean, Jesus only lived to be 33 years old before he was crucified. So Paul is saying, hey, you've arrived once you reach 33. No, uh, the word can also refer to reputation. In fact, in Luke 2.52, when Jesus is said to be growing in wisdom and stature, we see that he also was beginning to gain a good reputation with other people. So as Jesus aged, he gained stature. He, he, he gained a positive reputation among other people. And that's really the way it is with all great men and women throughout history. Nobody knows who the great men and women are when they're first born, because they're just like everybody. Nobody knew, you know, who George Washington was until he was born, or Clara Barton, or Abraham Lincoln. Okay? But as they grew older and as they matured, as they served courageously and self-sacrificially, as a result, they gained a good reputation before others. That's what it means to grow in stature, to gain stature. And again, I'm not sure the church has good stature in the world right now. Survey after survey have been, has been done over the last couple decades, and the average non-Christian has a pretty dismal view of Christianity in general. We're generally not described as loving and kind and generous, but rather as judgmental, rude, arrogant, and hypocritical. Okay, so if we if we want to reverse this stigma in the world, then we're going to have to put to practice some of the things Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. We need to live in unity with one another so that we can become mature Christians, so that we can gain a good reputation among outsiders. And that will happen as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. 
Finally, then, we're to become like Christ in his fullness. This means become like him in every way. We can't pick and choose which parts of Jesus we like. Uh, We're to become like him in every way. And is this ever going to be possible for us in this life? No, it's not. But just like knowledge, we're growing knowledge and we're also supposed to grow in fullness. Become like him in his measure and his stature and his fullness. Behave like him, talk like him, act like him. When people look at us, they should see Jesus. See, man, he's been with Jesus. She looks like Jesus. She acts like Jesus. All right, so those are the three. We've seen the three dimensions, and then this last part, the three aspects of, uh, of uh, our Christ-likeness, the three dimensions, unity and knowledge and Christ-likeness. And all of these together show us what God intends for his church. When we are developing into unity, when we're growing to our knowledge and we become the the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, then this is what God plans, wants, and desires for the church. Okay, and he has given us everything we need to accomplish this. All right, Jesus Christ is our model, and God has given us everything necessary to help us become like Jesus. Everything we do, think, and say as individuals and as a church as a whole— should be patterned after what Jesus did, what Jesus thought, what Jesus said, how Jesus behaved. And as we pattern ourselves after the model of Jesus Christ, we become like Jesus so that the world can see what God wants, not only for the church, but for all humanity. When my brother was building that model for the church expansion, he said the model helped people see what the end product would look like which in turn helped people get excited about where the building was going. God, too, has laid out a model for us in Scripture. If we want to know what we are going to look like, if we want to get excited about our future, then we need to develop a complete and thorough knowledge of Jesus Christ and then seek to live, love, and serve just like Jesus. Only when we do this will we come to unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Only then will we become like our model, Jesus. What are you doing this week, today even, to help become like this model and reveal Jesus to a watching world? Hey, thanks for listening today to Ephesians 4.13. I hope you found it encouraging, insightful, helpful in some way. And um, for bearing with me over these last several months, as I have not been very regular with these podcasts, I really appreciate it. If you do appreciate it and you're not part of my discipleship group and you like to get more of this kind of teaching, consider joining me at redeeminggod.com. Just click the Join Us button near the top. And there is a, a monthly or annual fee for joining my discipleship group. And that's just sort of your way of helping support the work and ministry that I do. It takes a lot of time and effort to provide these teachings. And, um, you know, I provide lots of stuff for free through my website, but also for people who want to go a little bit further, learn a little bit more, and also support the work I do. That discipleship group is there for you to do that. Okay? Hey, thank you so much. We're going to be back next week looking at Ephesians 4.14 as we continue to discover God's blueprints for church growth. We'll see you then.